Welcome to the Daughters Project Podcast. We're so glad you're here. Join us this season as the sisters, along with Father Harrison Eyre, explore what it means to live with a sacramental worldview. You can find out more about our work at thedaughtersproject.com and on social media at Daughter St. Paul. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Daughters Project podcast. This is Sister Teresa Alethea, and I am here with Sister Nancy Elselman and Father Harrison Eyre. And we are here to continue talking about Father Harrison's book, Mysterion. And uh, our last episode, we talked about the sacramental worldview in general and how that has been personally important to all of us. And today we're going to be talking about mystery and sacrament. But before we begin, we're going to begin with uh, Overheard in the Convent. And this time I came prepared with a story to tell. (laughs) I actually was asking the sisters at lunch what we should talk about and Several of them came up with celebrity stories, and I said, that's perfect because Sister Nancy's going to be on the show, and I'm sure she'll have stories, too. (laughs) So one sister was telling me a story about when Jim Caviezel came into the bookstore, and she she was trying really hard, like, not to fangirl. I think that's (laughs) that's something that our sisters—I think sometimes celebrities don't assume that we'll recognize them, and they're surprised when we do— but um, we're also very respectful of their privacy and space, too. But our sisters often do recognize celebrities because we're media nuns. So we try to keep up with that. Some of us have celebrities who we especially pray for. Mm-hmm. And in L.A., we get quite a few people coming in who are in the industry. And some of our sisters have no idea who anyone is, including <laughs> I, I remember hearing a story about a sister helping Brendan Fraser pick out a rosary or something. <laughs> And she had no idea who he was. But then other sisters can pick out everybody, like Sister Marie James. She'll be like, that is so-and-so from Law and Order. He played a criminal. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she just knows. So those are just a few of the things. But I, I am assuming you have quite a few because I've seen pictures of you with <laughs> who, who did I see? Well, I've been with several, but it's usually a press junkets for movies. So Yeah. I saw a picture of you with Harrison Ford recently, yes. and that was impressive. Yes. That was last year, <laughs> right before the pandemic. I was able to be at a press junket with Harrison Ford. And it's quite interesting because he comes right up to Sister Rose and I. We were in a group of about 15 journalists in a room, and he comes right up to us and he says, sisters, nice to meet Aww. you. <laughs> Shakes our hand, says, hello, how are you? And, and after you know, it's interesting. You think sometimes that celebrities don't, you know, maybe they don't consider about their faith uh, aspect of their life or whatever. But I, I actually said to him at the end, I went up to him personally. And I just said, you know, we're the media nuns. We're daughters of St. Paul. And we pray for all those who work in the media. That's part of our spirituality. And we do that daily. And And so I said, so we're praying for you uh, and all your special intentions. And he just looked at me, closed his eyes, put his head down and said, that means more to me than, you know, that's, so you know, beautiful. so we don't really know. They're just people They're, you know, we, sometimes we put them high on pedestals, you know, mm-hmm. anybody who's famous, but really they're just people. And sometimes their life can look like a mystery to us because it's just like so far removed. But in actual fact, they're human beings like all of us. It's kind of nice to say that to them and for them to realize that someone is praying for them. You have a whole group of nuns praying for you. (laughs) That's what I tell them. 
<laughs> I have I have two things to say to that. One is first, I've always wanted to meet Harrison Ford because he's actually my namesake. Oh, really? I'm actually named after him. My my dad <laughs> loved Raiders of the Lost Ark. He saw it like 14 times in theaters. And so one of those 14 times, he finally convinced my mom to go see it. And they were pregnant with me at the time. <laughs> and they saw Harrison Ford on the title screen. And they, my mom said, Harrison, that's a good first name to go with the short last name. And so it's because of Raiders of the Lost Ark that I Oh, my name. gosh. <laughs> but, that is so great. Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. So that, there you go. But the second thing is, so my experience with the Missionaries of Charity was uh, the only thing I could think of them fangirly, sisters fangirling moreover is like if a bishop comes to visit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what happened? Where was it happen more? Is it happen with the celebrities, or is it happen with the bishops, or is it just whatever? I think our biggest celebrity is the Eucharist. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I, Jesus, I actually of wrote a blog post about that at one point because I I'm a Eucharistic minister for our older sisters, and it just blows me away, like how they receive the Eucharist every time. I'm just like, this is amazing. It's like I'm bringing them a rock star because I really, that's I, I got to say, it's rather interesting because, um, you know, we may be on the red carpet doing an interview. Like we interviewed um, Clint Eastwood on a red carpet. And it's, it's funny because all the other journalists were coming to the sisters, to us, to say, oh, can I have a picture with you? So we were becoming <laughs> the celebrities that they wanted to take a picture with. <laughs> They're like, I I'm used to seeing Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I want a picture with you. I had similar experiences in Rome. Because like, if you're a priest, if you're in a collar, you're a tourist attraction. <laughs> That's so true. I would in Rome. St. Peter's, yeah. And people are like, hey, Father, can I get a picture with you? I'm like, really? No You'd idea. think that would be like normal. Like there's tons of priests in Rome. Well, that's the thing, but it's like for some, for a lot of people, they've just never even seen a priest before. So I don't know. I just got, I remember the last time I was in Rome, I had no idea who they were. He had no idea who I was. They just wanted a picture with a priest. Well, wow, it's funny so because in Rome, I was in with my brother who's a priest and we were walking into a restaurant and they all go to him and say, oh, Padre, oh, Father, Father, you know, and then I'm just like some other person on the side. <laughs> but here, it's funny, but in Hollywood, nuns are fascinating to people. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the opposite. It's, it's really interesting. But anyway, it's kind of fun. <laughs> That's really great. So we have a really beautiful chapter to be talking about. And I love this intro for this chapter where you talk about Gaudi's Sagrada Familia in Spain. In this intro, um, Father Harrison kind of paints a picture of the beautiful sacramental kind of art that he has that's like naturalistic, but also like lifts you up to this sense of wonder and awe. Um, and I remember I, I went to the Sagrada Familia when I was an atheist, and I was in college at the time. And I, it's interesting because I had a moment of conversion, but there were moments uh, preceding those moments, and that was one of them. I remember it wasn't like I was intellectually pondering anything in that time that I was there, but I was just in awe the entire time. I, it was almost like I couldn't speak. It was so just overwhelming what he what he manages to capture and I don't even know how to articulate it even now I'm assuming you've seen it too because you wrote about it have you yeah, seen it Father I went Harrison? I went to World Youth Day in Madrid in 2011 when I was a seminarian and a couple of friends of mine and I we decided to one of them was an artist and so I said you have to we have to go to Barcelona like we were here and we couldn't fly out for a few days because of like when you're going to World Youth Day, it might take a few days to get a flight out afterwards because there's just so many people flying in and out. And so we were going to be in Madrid for a couple of extra days anyway. So I said, hey, let's fly out to Barcelona for a couple of days. And let's just go see Gaudi stuff. And so we got out there We and we we spent two days there. And the first day, 
the entire day was at the Sagrada Familia. Mm. My friend's brother was perhaps who's not really caring about art at all was perhaps less enamored by this, but uh, we we were both just in awe of it the entire day, and just I I couldn't leave. I mean, it, it's a very interesting experience because like you you enter through the at least at the time was through the Holy Family facade, which almost looks like it's coming up from the mud mm. almost. Then it's then it comes into this beautiful facade of the Holy Family as you're entering into the into the church, and then as you enter in, yeah, the, the windows they're not. Um, your traditional stained glass with images, but they're constructed in such a way to allow the light to naturally illuminate the place. That place doesn't really need lighting at all because the light from outside just does this. And, and yeah, you're brought up into this kind of naturalism. And, and it's beautiful because Gaudi himself, and this is one of the things I learned when I was there, was that he saw the beauty and importance of Gothic architecture in the Western tradition. Mm-hmm. He saw that as important to build upon, mm-hmm. that he didn't agree with modern architects who just want to throw things out. But he also, he, he loved nature. And he loved that there's no straight lines in nature. Everything's curved. And so he said, why do we build buildings with straight lines? Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, that's not natural. Mm-hmm. And so the Sagrada Familia is really his attempt to marry these two things, Gothic architecture and nature together. And so what happens is when you go in, it's an experience of the natural world that lifts you up towards the supernatural, which is the whole point of sacred architecture. It, it brings you into this experience of this natural world. Like like the, the pillars look like tree trunks, right? But they support and you, they force you to look up. Like, And that's the other thing. That's what Gothic architecture is meant to make you look up, to behold the grandeur and the glory, and that it's meant to be a taste of God's glory in this world. I almost wanted to spend the entire second day there. I I haven't been back since, and I desperately want to go back. In fact, thankfully, because so many tourists go there now, they get so much income from that. The timeline has actually been rushed forward, and I think it's going to be the next 10 or 20 years instead of like 40 years. So I'm very eager to go back to do it when it's done. And finally, one more point about this is that Pope Benedict himself made a special trip to Barcelona to consecrate the Basilica because he saw in it what modern church architecture could be. Mm, and he saw mm-hmm. in it a particular form of beauty. I mean, this is one of those, like for me, it was the most beautiful church I've ever been in. Mm-hmm. More beautiful than St. Mm-hmm. Peter's. St. Peter's is glorious and, and, wow. and it's important in its own point. But the Sagrada Familia, I've never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. That happens to me anytime I go into like a cathedral or any place like that that just arrests you with beauty. I think I need a dose of beauty like at least once a day. I have to find it somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some yeah. dose of beauty, you know, because I think that's what gives us life and awareness of God's presence. Uh, and and it could be in a church, especially with the Eucharist, but it could be anywhere. Like it could be just with the people you're living with, you know, you're recognizing something beautiful about another person or recognizing the, the gift that is in just living the moment and being alive today. It's like, thank you, God, for today. Um, but I, I, I see that the need in our world and with people I encounter is to be aware of beauty. Um, and and I, I like it how Bishop Barron says, you know, our catechesis now needs to start with beauty because that's what's going to lead people into a desire um, and desire more, perhaps, this um, intimacy with God and that relationship with God. And and I think if we start with beauty, it makes, it just brings that truth and goodness will come forward from it, so. Mm-hmm. I thought of Bishop Barron too when I was reading this intro and I was thinking there's a lot of wisdom in his idea of beginning with beauty 
And I was thinking, especially because it's connected to the sacramental worldview, it can help people shift the way they think about the world. Whereas just logical arguments, there's there's so many, and I speak from experience, there's just so many obstacles we can put up to that. And there's so many ways of, of making something logical. And if your assumptions are illogical, it can still seem logical to you. And I think that's what happens in a lot of modern mindsets. But beauty kind of short circuits that or or like goes beneath it and and it just brings you to wonder immediately and you're not even wondering why you're wondering you just are are in awe it kind of short circuits all of that logical thinking that we like to get lost in and just brings us to awe and like a pause of it and it opens our minds to to understand the world in a different way i think and it forces us to be receptive mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. when you're allowing pure logic to take over you cease being receptive i mean this is the beautiful like you think of someone like saint thomas aquinas for example a great theologian and a man of great logic but that logic always came out of it was always rooted in hit the receptivity of prayer mm-hmm. right the hours mm-hmm. and hours a day he would spend in prayer to write anything at all mm-hmm. and that contempl- like so for, for the church's history contemplation is the starting point Right. And that receptivity, it's that's it's we'll talk about this in another episode, but it's that Marian stance of towards the world that that how Mary approaches the world is how we're meant to approach the world with a receptivity. That, like I, I, I've always just thought like one of my favorite experiences that's always just stuck in my memory is when I was at an airport one time and I was in a smaller Bay Area where it's like these little puddle jumper planes to get us to Vancouver Island and waiting for my flight. And I saw a child run up to one of the doors and the door would open and then he'd walk away and he would back and the door would open and he would scream with joy and <laughs> awe and then walk away and he did it like 20 times and there was a beautiful thing about it because not only was it bringing him joy it was bringing everybody who was watching it joy and i look at that i say but that's how we're meant to be mm-hmm. He, that child was in the stance, like this is what Jesus means about becoming like a child, right? It, it's, mm-hmm. we, we were in this, this stance of receptivity and awe. I don't know if any of you have seen Ted Lasso yet. Yes. Mm-mm. Okay. <laughs> Great show. Highly <laughs> yes. recommend it. Yes. It, towards, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's this point in episode eight where he's doing a dark game mm-hmm. against uh, the football team's owner's ex-husband. And he quotes this Walt Whitman line. So I drove one day and I saw this Walt Whitman quote that just kind of changed my life. Be curious, not judgmental. And that imbues his character with an awe and an openness towards the people he encounters to see the best in them, to see what they're capable of. And that's how we're supposed to be towards life. And that's how we're supposed to stand towards the world. Logic has a place in this too, but it's a response to the receptivity, not... um, it's not meant to be, it's never meant to be the starting point. There's a, like mm-hmm. Fulton Sheen, there's a reason he always started with a funny story on his show. It was an encounter with joy and beauty right. and poking fun at himself uh, to bring about the audience to listen to the truth he had to proclaim. I mean, that's a class, classic rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And we kind of lost that for a while. And I think we need to start with beauty, but we also have another kind of pre-evangelization thing to do with that too. Mm-hmm. We, we aren't, we talked about this last episode, we're not quiet or silent enough to receive beauty. Mm-hmm. And so we don't actually mm-hmm. know it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
That's a really great point. I really like that, that you're saying we're not quiet enough. I think in our culture doesn't allow us uh, that time for reflection. And, and I was reading several things lately about, especially about young adults uh, today and in, in their struggle into finding uh, meaning in life. And, and that's for everybody, not just young adults, but it's, it's, our culture doesn't allow for reflection and for us to think and, and examine and really reflect. And even logically though, you know, we say, we talk, you know, people are, are logically trying to find, but actually people don't really think logically. And that's a, that's a problem in many ways. It's a, it's a problem of our philosophies that were being taught that it's not a logical uh, way of thinking, but, but I agree that it has to be, we have to be receptive first to um, the gift. And the gift is in the beautiful. It's in the in the simplicity of life. Like you said, the child who was going in and out of the door. I just watched a video somebody sent me of their nephew, who is who you know was in a little pool and he was they were throwing a little ball and every time they threw it, he was like giggling his heart out. It was the cutest thing, of course. But I think we don't think about stopping long enough to notice, and that's a really important part of. A spirituality for today is to step back and reflect and to ponder. And I, th I think that's also the power of, of really beautiful things, because even if we are not in a habit of con contemplation, even if we don't have a habit of prayer, there, there are things in life that are just so beautiful that they pierce through the busyness and they just kind of stop us in our tracks. And there's nothing we can do but just say, wow. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that those are moments of evangelization, even if someone isn't able to find the, the calm or the contemplation in their life. Um, in those moments, there's just an opening there that, that God uses to kind of get in in that, in that moment of just, sh it's shock in a lot of ways. I mean, when I, was, when I was looking at the Sagrada Familia, I was shocked. I just was like, how did someone do this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's not just the brilliance of, of human invention, but he's incorporating God's creation. Mm -hmm. So there's something just so supernatural in that that just lifts your soul and um, uh, just brings you to a place of, of complete openness and I think um, that's the power of beauty. But I think a lot of times, not only non-believers, but uh, Christians and Catholics can lose that sense of, of curiosity and mystery and contemplation. And, and we can approach other people as if the faith is very black and white and very simple and not mysterious in, in the sense that Father Harrison uh, raises that that sense of mystery in the in the Catholic sense, not the sense of oh we have no idea what's going on. But you bring out like four different aspects of mystery in the Christian notion of mystery: uh, the concealment, revelation of God's activity, ritual participation in God's saving deeds, and then you speak about the connection to sacrament. So I thought we could start with talking about the aspect of mystery as concealment, because I, I think that's something that we're not really comfortable with, that aspect of, of mystery as much. Yeah, we're not. And I think part of this is the mindsets that we are formed in, again, are, are quite modern and scientific. And listen, science isn't a bad thing, obviously, but you know, there's a difference between being scientific and scientism, right? Um, mm -hmm. Scientism says that we can, we can solve every puzzle. 
right? And then, in fact, that's often how we approach the term mystery, right? We think of it as, mm-hmm. as a problem to be solved where I can understand everything. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, not only just with God. I mean, it becomes quite obvious when you start to break it down with God. But just even in one's own life, I, I've always been struck by this story about G.K. Chesterton, how he was stuck at a train station for two hours. And so someone asked him what he did. And he said, I stared at the curtains for two hours. Now, we might not know what he's getting at there, but he, he, was, he was entering into the mystery. He saw the curvature, the subtleness, like all, those, all these, these things about the curtains that he realized that no matter how much he stared at the curtains, he could never fully comprehend them. There's always a something more to everything we perceive. Every person we encounter is a mystery to us. We are a mystery to ourselves, right? I, I always say to people in confession, like, when you're bringing me your sins, we know there's different conditions for something to be truly mortal against us. And I'm like, I don't even know those. And you probably don't even know those. Like, it's good to bring it, for sure. But it's like, actually, only God knows that one because we're even a mystery to ourselves. I've yet to meet anyone who can tell me they know everything about a special person in their life. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, true love grows mm-hmm. in a marriage when the mystery of the relationship unveils itself over time. Mm-hmm. And and they'll say they – like every marriage married couple, they always tell you that they love each other way more later on than they did at the beginning. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So over and over again, this is – this is the idea of concealment, that at the heart of mystery is this idea of concealment, that things are shown, but in a way that we can't try to grasp the totality of things. Yes. God shows himself in a mysterious way, that, that God conceals himself yes. so that we don't try to grasp at him, right? This is, that's, I mean, I love that line from, I love the hymn from Philippians in general in chapter two. Uh, you know, but have the same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not deem equality with God as something to be grasped at. This is mm-hmm. this is a counteract to the sin of Adam and Eve who grasped at divinity. It's not, it's a gift to be received, right? We need to rediscover that receptive contemplative stance again. So mystery allows for concealment that says, mm-hmm. I don't need to understand it all, but I can enter into the mystery more. One of my favorite books of all time is The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and in the Heavenly Narnia, it's that yes. great phrase. Further up and further in. And they always and they describe it that their experience later on never counter it's never a counterfactual or or denigrates what they experienced earlier. Mm-hmm. But was something just truly loved and experienced in the moment and it was full in itself. And then though they're in something deeper, the depth was never lost in the earlier thing. Mm-hmm. Eternity then is not some boring staring at God like an image, but it's an entering into the mystery of his being. We're fully in him, but also recognizing that though we see him as he is because of our finitude and our createdness, we're never going to fully comprehend him in an eternal way. We're always going to enter further into God himself. That's right. Yeah. That's but right. that requires a mystery and a concealment. Right. Well, mystery is it's not about that which we cannot know. I mean, we can grow to know things that are of God. We can get to know God, not utterly and completely, but I think mystery is rather about what we cannot transcend or exhaust. There's several movies that are out. The culture really I think struggles with these existential desires, that desire for something more. Because like you said, the scientism, and we'd like to just see what we can see and know what we can know physically. Um, but the supernatural takes us beyond that. 
And there's several movies that reach down deep into that existential desire. And one movie that came out at Sundance this year was called Land uh, by Robin Wright. She was uh, the director and the main actor. And it's really about this woman who, a middle-aged woman who's just struggling. And you, you find out she experiences some terrible tragedy in life. And what happens is that she just literally leaves everything. Her, her sister, who she's close with, um, but the grief just overwhelms her. She just leaves everything and goes and lives in a little cabin in the Rockies in the middle of nowhere. And nobody knows that she's there. She tells the, the one person who helped her get up there to take her car away, take everything away, and for no one to see her. She, she just had to learn how to live again with that grief. But what's interesting is that the mystery of life is so fascinating is that there's this one hunter who comes along and he just sees her actually almost half dead and he revives her and helps her along. But it's actually in that relationship. He was trying to eliminate all relationships because they were a problem, but she finds life again even in that mystery of what she wasn't experiencing, what didn't want to experience. And there's a lot of films that talk about that. And I, I think it's so interesting right now that it's coming out more and more. We have to find who we really are and we go back to the basics and mm -hmm. it's in the mystery. And then we discover that it's in the mystery that we yeah. find life. It's not like we can figure it all out. And it's interesting to me that another person helped to reveal herself to herself, because I think that's often what happens. Um, our relationships, other people, it's, it, it's kind of a Trinitarian dynamic that other people can help us to lift the concealment of mystery in ourselves and help us to understand ourselves. I'm wondering if we could go back to that concept of grasping, because I feel like maybe we could speak personally. Are there times when you have felt that you did that. I mean, for me, it's pretty obvious. Like when I was an atheist, I I was very comfortable with the idea of materialism because that's something that you can grasp and you understand and, and it's not something beyond. But even, even after my conversion, I, I would say that I grasped uh, uh, kind of in an unhealthy way onto orthodoxy. I'm orthodox, but I did it in a way that was almost like it made me feel safe to say, is this orthodox or is this not? And I kind of approached things in a very cautious, um, almost suspicious way instead of a curious way. And uh, so I think that that was something that I kind of had to move through that into the mystery of what it what it truly means to be faithful to the church's teaching, where there there are guideposts and guidelines, but it's not black and white. It's not as clear as I might have thought it was or wanted it to be. Do you guys have any any other like personal experiences where you sense that grasping in the mystery? There is an experience I had with confession recently, and. Um, and, and I think this pandemic time has been a challenge in many ways, uh, for various reasons. Uh, but for me personally, it shifted the way we think, the way we do things as a society as a whole. And at one point I was really just struggling thinking, you know, Lord, what am I doing? I, I, I want to do something great, but somehow I can't even get myself to be focused enough to do it. Like I want to really do something that makes a difference. And so I was talking about this with the priest in confession. <laughs> he said, well, maybe you just need to worry about making a difference with the people you live with. And I said, whoa, 
okay, all right. I think I was grasping onto something that was beyond me, something that I, I thought I could make a difference in, some tremendous work in the apostolate or whatever in the mission. But in actual fact, he's saying, you need to make a difference with those you live with. And, and that, that kind of brought me back down to reality and making it real mm -hmm. and finding the sacramental in the moments with the people I live with and, and yeah. the community I live with. That's a beautiful example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, it's kind of similar to Sister Teresa in that in my early days post-conversion, my experience now as I grow in years and hopefully some wisdom, uh, uh, you look at people in their early 20s, they kind of freshly get that zeal and there is this sense of the only way to defend it is through pushing the truth almost, right? And you become a bit of a jerk. <laughs> and and like and for me it's funny because like I've I've learned to soften that a bit. And I and I'm not trying to denigrate or downplay that either. I always say that we should always hold things in a kind of paradox, like mm -hmm. hold them in tension. Beauty and truth and goodness mm -hmm. are not opposed to each other. I always, my favorite mm -hmm. line to say is you should always say the truth in a beautiful way for the good of the other, right? Mm -hmm. Always hold the the mm -hmm. three transcendentals right. in tension there. Um, but for me, it was definitely early on. And I think it still hangs with me a bit because it was after my conversion, I started to love to read. I didn't really read books before my conversion. I hated reading. I would sell all my textbooks right away <laughs> when I was done the semester at school. Uh, and that's kind of shocking to me. Yeah, <laughs> no. the idea. I know it shows you Jesus's grace really does work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, now I can't ever. I can never sell a book. I can give a book away, but I can't sell a book. And it still hangs with me a bit. Not in the defensive posture of I need to be secure in the truth anymore. I think I feel more comfortable with myself and the world and the mystery and the messiness of the world. But it's still a temptation for me. Because I am a theologian, like I'm doing my PhD in theology, and even in the academic world, you're really pushed to use your own brain power almost without that prayerfulness. I've always, mm -hmm. like, I've always loved, and I think I actually mentioned at some point in the book, Balthazar's idea of doing theology on one's knees, right? Mm -hmm. That theology and spirituality are actually meant to go together. And in many ways, that's kind of the purpose of my book. It's meant to teach you something theological, yes, and catechetical. But it's meant to root you in the spiritual and the experiential. These things are not opposed to each other, but actually meant to be rooted in each other. You have to have them both. So it's always a temptation for me to grasp because I do well in my theological work. Mm -hmm. It's easy to think that you have it all figured out. And I, and I think God has given me some different experiences, like trying to deal with my ADHD and stuff like that in this last year, realizing I have that, and also coming to terms with my own weaknesses and failures that and God helping me come to admit them that I am able to not grasp so much anymore because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. when we grasp we try to control right and we try to like for me actually I'll just you know I'll share this I, I realized this last week Jesus kind of really put on my heart stop making excuses because I got in a way with it so much in my life in the sense that they always work and I always get my way in the end but that's the grasping Mm -hmm. And I have to deal with the consequences of my actions. And I've never been good with that. So Jesus has really kind of uh, put that on my heart this week to say, take more responsibility for things. And that's a good thing. It, I feel a little late in life learning that lesson, but um, it's still a good lesson to learn. And, and But that only comes when you have that heart receptivity. And it wasn't even in any type of prayer. Actually, I was... 
I was watching the latest episode of Falcon and Winter Soldier when this hit me. There was a line there where they said, do the work. And I was like, do yeah, it. like, just do it. Well, I mean, that's very sacramental because God uses everything to exactly. communicate with us. It was just like, of all shows to think about, but it was like, it was just, and it's been like a so-so show, but it was just that moment in that line, like, they're talking to Bucky, like, you got to do the work if you want to actually move forward. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, I don't do the work. I got to do the work. <laughs> And Sister Teresa's like nodding her head heavily. <laughs> Question guide. <laughs> yeah, he still owes me a reader's guide for yes, the book. But yes, that's, that is come. 100% coming today. 100%. <laughs> so I kind of uh, bristle when people associate truth with kind of that hard apologetics that is lacking in kind of uh, subtlety and uh, the importance of beauty and all of those things. Um, because for me, I chose the word aletheia for my name, for my religious name, because, and it means truth in Greek. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life in scripture, that's the word is aletheia. And I, that's always been uh, uh, important to me because we can think that we have a grasp on the truth. And if we present it in a way that we think it's black and white and it's, and it's crystal clear, um, we're losing, we're losing sight of the fact that Jesus is the truth. So the word aletheia actually means kind of unveiling or unconcealment. And that's, that's so beautiful to me because that's what mystery is, is concealment. But then the other aspect of mystery that you bring up, Father Harrison, is that unveiling, how, how God unveils himself and in, throughout history is his saving act. And I love the sentence that you have here because you say, Jesus is not only the savior of the world, he's also the revealer of God to us. So he un unveils God. And yeah. so in that sense, he is the truth. So um, it's like that that word captures the the deepest meaning of truth, which is not that black and white kind of harsh way that we can use that word. But but the deepest meaning of truth is Jesus Christ himself. Exactly. And I'll actually even add one more thing to my phrase. He also I mean, this is and this is Vatican Council so to Gaudium et Spes. Thank you, John Paul II, for this line. He also reveals man to himself. Right. Mm, yeah. So he saves. He reveals God. He also reveals us. So. He shows what man really is in an unveiled way with, with our humanity. But and this is the beautiful thing. He reveals God, but he reveals him in a veiled way because mm -hmm. the humanity of Jesus veils the divinity, right? Mm -hmm. So there's always this tension at play. And that's the thing we always want. We want to stay in that tension of this, like, it's these both ends that are always mm -hmm. at play. Like, I've loved the resurrection accounts over Easter because – I, I say it every Easter to people because I'm like, I want you guys to understand how well the gospel writers get this paradox across. Mm -hmm. Like this last Sunday's gospel was talking about how this is Luke's gospel. And it was, he appears in the room to them after the road to Emmaus. And it says that they were terrified and, and disturbed and fearful. And then he says like, would a ghost have all these properties? And he goes, don't be afraid. Don't doubt. And then it says, but then, in their joy, they were still doubting or something like that. And they were still fearful. It, yeah, the phrase was incredulous joy. I love yeah, that phrase. Exactly. Yeah. But what better phrase to give to the resurrection experience? Because this is something yeah. they have no they have no reference point for. Right. And so yeah. the way the gospel writers talk about it is to show that 
this is something new. And so their whole experience doesn't know how to grasp at it, which is good. Like it's showing that this is something utterly unique. This isn't just Lazarus raising from the dead where he eats at the table with them afterwards. This is a resurrected body. Something is different about the resurrection, right? So it reveals this in this concealed way. It also makes something present, something new. But that newness is going to confound and cause fear even sometimes because of our fallenness. But at the same time, it's the place of joy because it's in that receptivity to God's action for us, revealing himself to us in Christ, that we actually find the fulfillment really of everything. And so Christ is the center of revelation in this regard. The Old Testament is always building up, and God kind of constantly unveils himself more and more throughout the Old to to this kind of penultimate, unexpected point of coming in the flesh for us. And now we're in that New Testament of that full revelation where we can always look to Christ who is risen from the dead today to us and and present to us in the church to see who God is in Christ and then through that also to see who we are. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love it. it. As Pauline sisters, um, our founder, Blessed James Alberioni, gave us this devotion to Jesus as the master, the way, the truth, and the life. And that aspect of the Jesus way, truth, and life always struck me as this is so unique. I never even heard of this devotion before. Uh, I remember when I entered and I started reflecting on it. And then I was reading some of the Society of St. Paul, some of our priests and brothers, um, their writings on this devotion. And um, Father George Cathalil from India wrote this beautiful reflection on Jesus as truth. And I just kept remembering thinking like, yes, Jesus is everything we hope for, everything we desire, everything we want to be and long for as human beings. We, we, he shows us what perfect humanity looks like. And he's revealing to us the truth of our very life. Um, and even Pope Francis says that, you know, you'll be uh, recently, he says, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like your whole, if you desire holiness, that is going to be the who you are in fulfillment because that's you're most like christ when you are most yourself like you're most human um because that's who christ is and that truth of humanity that he reveals to us in in especially in the gospels we're learning who we are through reading about christ and how he lived how he how he treated other be- uh, human beings how he um reveals the father uh, and that's just such a powerful that that devotion now to jesus master is way truth in life it speaks to every aspect of our being our minds our wills our hearts uh, our actions our way of living our way of thinking um and and it just ever since i kind of grasped that what that devotion means it's like, okay, that's my favorite. <laughs> I just love it. Yeah. I live it. I talk to Jesus <laughs> as my master teacher. Uh, that's just how we interact. That's how I I, I um, speak to him. And everyone has to figure out, well, how they relate to Christ themselves. You know, some mm-hmm. people picture Christ differently in their minds, but it's you have to find out how you can relate to Christ. And that's mm-hmm. so important for your spiritual life. Yeah. Um, Before we wrap up, Father Harrison, I was thinking maybe you could just make the connection to sacraments, like mystery and sacrament. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the whole point, the reason I kind of wrote this in this chapter is because uh, the Greek word for mystery is mysterion, right? And hence the uh, 
the title of the book. Um, but when St. Jerome was translating uh, from Greek to the Vulgate Latin, he uses a word for mystery, sacramentum, sacrament. So sacrament is not just, and it, uh, it's going to be interesting for those who do read the book, you're going to notice I don't talk a lot about the seven sacraments in the book. And that's on purpose because the whole point, the scriptures revealed to us that sacrament, yes, I'm not trying to deny the, the importance of the seven sacraments. They're, they're vital to the life of the church. But that sacramentality goes is actually much bigger and that the seven sacraments are really rooted in a broader sacramental vision so that when we hear the word mystery, we hear the word sacrament. What does sacrament mean? And it's like, think of your catechesis, right? A visible sign that makes present and visible an invisible reality. Well, that's the whole worldview of the Christian. And that so whenever St. Paul, for example, he loves to use the word mystery. I love, I mean, Ephesians 5 is his famous one. This is a great mystery, and I apply it to Christ and his church. This is a great sacrament. This is a great thing that, yes, God is hidden through this, but he also reveals, makes his saving will known to the world through the sacrament. But that that's how Christ works in the life of the church itself. So when we hear the word mystery, we have to hear the word sacrament. And that sacrament doesn't just mean the seven sacraments. But it's actually a broader vision of how the, we understand the Christian, the Christian life. And so that's why we do, that's why we kind of go into that little bit about mystery to help us broaden the vision of sacramentality and really then to build up how we really understand the seven sacraments, which are our daily or once in a, once in a lifetime encounters with that, the saving mysteries of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the the foundation through which we understand the sacraments. And I think if you're lacking that foundation, our understanding of the sacraments can become kind of grasping and black and white and lacking in in that that cohesive sense of of the whole rather mm-hmm. than just the parts that you talk about. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And it it's and it helps you start to see that the seven sacraments communicate grace. Absolutely. But that God's grace is communicated other ways in the life of the church, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just the very fact that you are part of the church, which the council calls the, the universal sacrament of salvation, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Is God, that's how God communicates grace both to us and to the world. Yeah. It's all through the church. It's all through the church. So, yeah, grace is a, the tutte class, as Bernanos likes to say, right, at the end of, of Diary of a Country Priest, tutte class, and all is grace, for those who don't speak French. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the mediation of grace, that's what sacraments mm-hmm. are, you know, and I yeah. think mediation is such an el- important element of sacramentality, you know, Christ, mm-hmm. the Father is mediated through the Son, uh, and Christ is mediated through, uh, in for us, the seven sacraments, but also through all elements of the material world that we can encounter him and his mm-hmm. grace. So yeah, that's really, mm-hmm. it's really cool. It's a great aspect of the book. I love this part. Yeah. And so next week, actually, I am going to be gone because I'm going home for vacation, but Sister Danielle is going to be joining and hosting. And you're going to be talking about participation in Christ, which mm-hmm. is super Pauline concept. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Pauline sisters are going to be really excited about it. And also since it's Sister Danielle, who is our an artist, she's probably going to be talking about beauty again. Oh my gosh. That's her favorite topic. <laughs> I love the artwork she's been doing around this. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. She's, oh my gosh. I yeah. like, I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's Ugh. doing amazing stuff. So cool. I thought we would just close from with a prayer from St. Augustine, who one of one of my favorite quotes is from St. Augustine, where he says, if you if you understand him, it is not God. 
Um, and I, I think this is this is another prayer about knowing knowing God and his mystery. My God, let me know and love you so that I may find my happiness in you. Enable me to know you ever more on earth so that I may know you perfectly in heaven. Enable me to love you ever more on earth so that I may love you perfectly in heaven. And may my joy be great on earth and perfect with you in heaven. And that was from our Queen of Apostles prayer book. All right. Thank you for joining me, you guys. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you to all of you for listening to us. We are, Our sisters are praying for you. And I'm sure Father Harrison is praying for you, too. And just thank you. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care. God bless. Bye. Bye. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is a fruit of the Daughters Project. This initiative of the Daughters of St. Paul to spread the gospel online is made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. Consider joining us in our mission by contributing to Patreon today. You can find us at thedaughtersproject.com and on social media at DaughterSTPaul. God bless you. Father Harrison Ford. I'm sorry, I can't help that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you later. <laughs>